All right, Psalm 70, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, to bring remembrance. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. All right, our uh, sermon text today is Exodus 16. It's verses 1 through 8, and this is entitled Bread from Heaven. Chapter 16, verse 1, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. In the Bible, the word lechem, or bread, is often used synonymously with that which sustains us. That is carried over into English as well. We speak of breaking bread together as having a meal. We think of our daily bread as a term which encompasses everything we need to sustain us. And when we make money, we often call it bread, because money is what we deal with in order to buy those things which sustain us. As bread comes from the earth, we tie our existence to this earthly thing which keeps us going from day to day. Jesus spoke of another type of bread, a heavenly bread. As this comes from heaven, then it must sustain us in a completely different way, a way that we'll look at more closely in the sermon today. Bread is one of my favorite parts of any meal, and I love the many varieties of bread that are out there. If my lovely wife serves bread first, I'll often fill myself up on just that and absolutely nothing else, leaving her to wonder why she prepared eight or ten or maybe even twelve dishes for me to simply look at and ignore. When I was young and we went out to dinner with our uh, grandfather, he didn't want us to eat any bread before we had our meal for exactly that reason. He didn't want us stuffing ourselves on it and then missing out on whatever we ordered. I remember my grandfather filling up his coat pockets with the rolls that had been served but which were ignored during the meal. My grandfather was famous for that. In today's passage, the Lord promises to give the Israelites bread from heaven. Psalm 78's description of that bread is our text verse for today. It says, Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. 
had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Not every stop between Egypt and Sinai is recorded in the book of Exodus, but each stop that is recorded shows us something important that occurred and it is given as a picture of something later in redemptive history. This has been the case up until now, and so it's logical to assume that today's verses are no different. And so let's find out if that's correct by looking a little bit deeper into the passage that we just read. It really is great, isn't it? I mean it. It's stupendous that God has given us such marvelous stories that are so filled with wonder. Week by week, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is whining in the wilderness. It's verses one through three. Verse one, and they journeyed from Elim. Chapter 15 ended with the account of the waters of Mara having been made sweet. This was immediately followed by the last verse of the chapter, which said, Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. This name Elim comes from a root, which, as I said last week, it indicates to protrude or to stick out, such as a porch on a house, or a ram in a flock, or a large tree. There at Elim, there were seventy palm trees, which protruded out of the oasis. And there were 12 springs or eyes of water, which provided water for the people. That was a picture of the work of the Lord in and through his 12 apostles and the 70 appointed disciples. Verse one continues. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. It's rather peculiar to me to have the words, all the congregation came, unless it means that they didn't all travel together at times. But this is logical. The main stops where all the people gathered would be big enough to fit two million people plus all of their flocks and herds. However, while traveling, they would go through areas that could in no way accommodate such large numbers. And so the congregation would divide at times in order to have sufficient room to lodge along the journey. Also, those who had flocks would want to break off from the others in order to find something for their flocks to snack on. Occasionally, though, there would be a place big enough to accommodate everyone, and this is where they would meet up as a whole group. Here in our first verse, it says that they journeyed from Elim and came to the wilderness of Sin. However, the actual travel log that was filled out by Moses in Numbers 33 includes another stop which is not mentioned here. Here's what it says. They moved from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. Scholars pretty much unanimously say that the stop by the Red Sea is left off in Exodus because nothing remarkable happened in it. But that is no reason to leave it off and to not record it. Rather, each stop in this abbreviated account in Exodus is given to show us a picture of something. Names always have importance when they're given, even if it isn't plainly evident to us why they're given. The name sin means thorn as in a thorn bush, and it is a shortened form of the word Sinai. This wilderness of sin is said to be between Elim and Sinai, which means bush of the Lord. This is the first mention of Sinai in the entire Bible. In all, it's going to be mentioned 35 times, and all of them except for four will be in the books of Moses. It is the same place known by its other name, Horeth. The stop now at the wilderness of sin is the eighth stop on their journey. Verse 1 continues, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. 
as the Passover was held on the 14th day of the first month and Israel departed Egypt on the 15th day, we know that this is now the 31st day of their travel. Israel has now been free from their bondage for one month, for just one month. Verse 2, then the whole congregation of Israel, of the children of Israel, complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Before the Exodus, the people complained against Moses and Aaron because of the workload upon them, which had increased. However, the Lord brought on Egypt all of his wonders while keeping Israel safe from them. Finally, the final plague on the firstborn came, and Israel was released from its 215-year captivity. But no sooner had they been freed than they complained against Moses as Pharaoh's army approached there by the Red Sea. Then after they had been miraculously delivered through the waters, they again complained against Moses at Marah because the waters there were not fit to drink. Now, for the first time, it says that they have complained against both Moses and Aaron. After 30 days, they are no longer content to trust that the Lord who delivered them was capable of continuing to deliver them. He had identified himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. But instead, they complained that his healing is less wonderful than the satisfaction of their stomachs. Verse 3, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. In this verse, the King James Version reads, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In the Hebrew, there is no mention of God. They followed the translation of the Geneva Bible that inserted this without any support from the text. However, the expression was probably included to give weight to the complaining of the people. Instead of being grateful for their freedom, the intent of their words is that they would have been better to die by the plagues of Egypt than to die by starvation in the wilderness. But I have to tell you what, Jeremiah gives the same thought as he watched the people dying of starvation during the siege of Jerusalem. This is recorded in the book of Lamentations. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For those pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. It should be noted, though, that the people still had flocks in abundance, as we will be seeing all the way through the wilderness wanderings. But not everyone had flocks, and they would be hungry as well. When people started to eat their animals, the others would join in and rapidly deplete the stocks. After 30 days, anything carried out of Egypt would be consumed, and so this would be their only option left. It is probably not an exaggeration that they had plenty of food to eat in Egypt either. Charles Ellicott, noting the ancient historian Herodotus, says this about that. It was the habit of the Egyptians to feed well those whom they employed in their forced labors, just as slave owners commonly do their slaves. The question for us is this. Knowing what the Israelites have pictured so far, would we rather be in bondage to sin and yet filled with all of the nummy things of this world, or would we rather be free from our bondage and suffer physical lack in the process? There can be no doubt that we're tied to our stomachs. They're a part of us, and without filling them, we will eventually waste away. But what price is our freedom from sin by the work of Christ? In the end, even if our bodies die, our soul will live because of him. Time and again, we're seeing the contrast between the carnal and the spiritual, and we're being asked to evaluate ourselves. For every meal that we eat, there's actually no guarantee that we will have another. If our last meal was our last meal, will we still be able to say the way of the Lord is worth the suffering? As a bonus thought for you, 
and as a squiggle for your brain, this is the first time that the word seer or pot is used in the Bible. It also means thorn. The idea is that a pot is used to boil up something and a thorn is something that rapidly springs up. So you can see the connection between the two words. It is of interest to me that the word seer means thorn as does the name of this place, sin. There's a connection seemingly being made between the pots of meat for the people which are now empty and the location where they now are. The cooking pots of Egypt have become painful thorns in the memory of the people as they impatiently turn their hearts back to their land of bondage. If the wilderness of sin is picturing the work of Christ, including his crown of thorns, then the picture seems to say, do you believe what he did for you is sufficient? Or do you want to go back to your old life of sin and bondage, pictured by the pots full of meat back in Egypt? And so I have a question for each of you today. What sin is tempting you from your own past? Don't let what once seemed to be so delightful, but which was so destructive, turn your heart away from following the Lord who brought you out of that past life of sin. Verse 3 continues, For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The you of these words is speaking of Moses and Aaron, and yet they are the Lord's representatives, and so he must be included in these words. They have just said that it would have been better if the Lord had taken their lives in Egypt, but that didn't happen. They cannot disassociate Moses and Aaron from the Lord. Further, there's still the background truth that the pillar of cloud and fire is still with them. Moses and Aaron are merely going wherever they are led. If they supposedly brought the assembly out to be killed, then the implication is that the Lord is even more to blame. I didn't get what I wanted for dinner. Oh, woe is me. I had to suffer through meatloaf instead of steak. Why is my life so difficult? How can it be? Won't life ever give me a break? I had to walk to work because my car broke down. My job is more than a half a mile down the road. Ten minutes of anguish and you wonder about my frown? Now leave me alone before I explode. Who cares that the Lord saved me through the Red Sea? Who cares that the bitter waters were made sweet? That was yesterday. It's all about me. I'm not a happy camper. My misery is complete. Our second thought today is bread from heaven, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The story of manna from heaven is one that is forever remembered by God's people. Hearing it just once is enough to solidify it in the memory of the mind for a lifetime. One reason is certainly that food comes from the earth, not from heaven. Just as man was taken from the earth, so our sustenance comes from there as well. To think that food would come from heaven means it's something beyond the ordinary and even heavenly has occurred. To be the recipient of a shower of heavenly blessing then would indicate divine favor. As the people of Israel picture the firstborn of all of God's people, then the bread from heaven is a picture of the divine favor of God upon them. And as bread is what sustains us in our physical bodies, this is picturing that which sustains our spiritual lives. It is exactly why Jesus spoke as he did in John chapter 6. He was asked what works a person must do in order to do the works of God. And there we read this. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is 
he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Secondly, we're so dependent on food that to think of it coming from heaven gives us the impression of an infinite supply. There's only so much ground, and when it has been picked clean, there's nothing left. Where else can one go for food when the ground has yielded its last morsel? But if something comes from heaven, there's always the possibility that more can come. Just as the bread from heaven was divine favor for the people upon Israel to sustain their physical lives, Jesus is God's divine favor upon his people to sustain their spiritual lives. It is a favor which never perishes and the supply of which will never, never run out. However, in the case of this account, the miracle of the bread from heaven doesn't begin with the bread coming from heaven. It begins with the promise of it coming, which is when the promise enters the ear of the hearer. If the words are true, then there will be an anticipation of their fulfillment. When they are realized, the miracle of the promise will also be realized. That is no different than our own grant of eternal life. The miracle of eternal life doesn't begin with our resurrection unto eternal life. Instead, it begins with the promise of its coming, which is when the promise enters our ears. As the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If the words of the Bible are true, then we will longingly wait in anticipation of their fulfillment. When they're realized, so will the miracle of the promise be realized. What Israel will wait just a few hours for, some faithful Christians have waited 2,000 years for, but the promise is not less true and its sure fulfillment will come in due time. Verse four continues, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. The Hebrew word here translated as certain quota is davar. Literally, it means word. The idea of a word is a thing or a matter, and the people are told to gather this thing, yom beyomo, or daily in its day. It is to be an act of faith that each day they would gather what was needed for that day. If they gathered and there was none the next day, then what they gathered would be their last meal. But by faith, they are being instructed to gather the word as it is daily in its day, trusting there would be another day to gather it in its day. And this is exactly what Paul tells us concerning our own spiritual walk in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says these words. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Each day is to be a day of trust. Just as Israel didn't gather up an infinite supply of manna to ensure that they would never face deprivation again, we don't simply expend all of our faith on any given day expecting it to last forever. Instead, we continue to exercise faith yom beyomo, or daily in its day. And these two principles, the physical and the spiritual, are tied up in the one unified thought of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus said these words, give us this day our daily bread. To be properly functioning believers, we need to eat daily with both physical and spiritual bread. So I have a question for you. Is everyone here today going to go home and eat something? Why are you going to do that? Because you need it to survive. Why would you think even for one second that you need to go home and eat at least once and maybe two more times today to have you continue to survive physically and not read the Bible? 
which is the only way that you can survive spiritually and to grow spiritually and to be healthy spiritually. Right? Everybody got that? This is a superior word. We read the Bible here. Verse 4 continues. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. These words follow the last words which were spoken to Israel just a few short verses ago. At the end of the last chapter, by the bitter waters made sweet, we read this. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. With the promise of bread from heaven, the Lord also gives the people a law to gather a certain quota each day. And he gives them the reason for the law, which is to test them. In the Garden of Eden, abundance was promised with the words, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And yet, a law was given as well. It was a law that bore its consequences if disobeyed. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you know that those are the very first words ever spoken by God directly to a human being and recorded in the Bible? Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was a consequence for not obeying the Lord's word. In Genesis 17, Abraham was given a promise of abundance. But along with that promise came a law, circumcision for him and his descendants for always in their household. Along with that law came a consequence for disobedience, being cut off from the people of God. Here in Exodus, a promise of abundance, even bread from heaven is given. But with that is the law that they are to gather a portion yom beyomo, or daily in its day. And there is also an implied consequence for disobedience, that the plagues of Egypt would come upon you. The same is true with the covenant at Sinai. There are great, great promises made to the people in Leviticus 26, but there are also great consequences for disobedience. Time and again, this pattern is seen in Scripture. So why should we think that the Lord works any differently towards us now? He has given us a promise of abundance, and he has given us laws which accompany this. But there are also consequences for not adhering to his laws. There are consequences for our earthly bodies when we depart from his precepts. You know, don't be a a drunkard. Why? Because you're going to lose your liver eventually. And there's a promise of the loss of eternal rewards in our life to come as well. It is a pitiful thing to think that every negative thing which we receive from the hand of the Lord is actually a self-inflicted wound. But that is how it is. What is more pitiful to me is that this is so rarely taught among Christians. People are told about the showers of manna, or they'll go to Ezekiel and talk about the showers of blessing that the Lord provides his people. But the law which accompanies the blessing and the consequences for not adhering to the law are quickly passed over or are completely ignored. Don't waste heaven's eternal rewards for sin's momentary pleasures. This is what I would first and foremost convey to you today. Verse 5, And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. There are two major differences of opinion on what this verse means. Some scholars take this as a command that the people are to actually go out and collect enough for two days. Others take it that what is collected on the sixth day will just turn out to be enough for both days. The Hebrew seems more naturally actually to prefer the latter option. Actually, it could be a combination of the two. 
verses 17 through 21 will show us that there is a miraculous element tied up in the collecting of the manna, and yet there is also a natural element as well. The people gathered until the manna melted away. At the end of the gathering, there was the right amount for everyone, even if some collected too much and some collected too little. Therefore, there's no reason to assume that the amount provided by the Lord was twice as much or that the time of the manna melted away was later than normal, allowing more time for them to gather it. Whatever was the case, twice was normally gathered would be gathered on the sixth day. And so each day was to be a day of faith that the next day would be taken care of by the hand of the Lord. I will test my people, but with an easy command. In conjunction with my grace, sending them heavenly bread, Surely they will be grateful and not whine or demand. Surely they will give me praise and thanks instead. I will ask of them to collect it day by day and to trust that it will come each day and on the next as well. Who could complain about that? Who could anything negative say? I'm sure they will be tickled pink and they'll think the deal is quite swell. And when I give them the true bread, when I give them my own dear son, surely everyone will call on him instead. The whole world will acknowledge he is the one. Actually, I know the wickedness of the human heart, but some will call out to him, and to them righteousness I will impart. Our third thought today is pots full of meat and bread to the full. It's verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron now contradict the words of the people, which we saw in verse 2. There they inferred that it was Moses and Aaron who brought them into the wilderness by complaining against them. They now correct them by saying that it will become evident at evening that it was not them, but the Lord who has led them. Based on what is said in verse 8, this verse here seems out of place. The Lord has been speaking of bread from heaven, which will come in the morning, and yet now Moses and Aaron tell them that at evening they would know that the Lord's hand was in it. This is based on the Lord giving them meat to eat, something which hasn't even been mentioned yet. So what is this picturing? Stay tuned for next week and you'll find out. <laughs> but the structure of the passage is one based on parallels. You all have it in your hand. I'll post it on YouTube eventually so they can see this as well. The quail parallel the evening and the manna parallels the morning. The bread is a miracle on a different order than that of the quail. Now I want you to think about that this week. What is this picturing? Because it's on a different order. One is coming in the evening, one is coming in the morning. And it is astonishing what it's picturing. A flock of quail coming into a camp not far from the ocean could be perceived as chance occurrence, but for the fact that it's announced in advance. And so in order to stave off the killing of the flocks that night, and in anticipation of the truly miraculous event which lie ahead, Moses and Aaron first mentioned that in the evening something great would take place. Verse 7, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Not only will the evening confirm to the congregation that it is the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, but the morning will demonstrate the glory of the Lord in a unique way. The Hebrew word for glory here is chavod. This is the first time that this word is used in conjunction with the Lord in the entire Bible. Based on the parallelism in the verses that we're looking at, the glory of the Lord spoken here is not what happens in verse 10, as many scholars state. That manifestation of the Lord's glory is given to confirm the manifestation of the giving of the bread. It is through the bread from heaven that the glory of the Lord will be seen in a special way for the congregation. This then follows on with the chain of thought which will run all the way throughout Scripture. 
There is a glorious aspect of the Lord which is unlike any other. In Isaiah, he claims this glory for himself alone. Here's his words. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And yet, in John 1, verse 14, we read these marvelous words which speak to us of the work of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And to ensure that we know that this isn't speaking of a different glory, one from Jesus and one from Jehovah and one from the Father, we read this in John chapter 17. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Throughout the epistles and into the book of Revelation, the glory of Jesus Christ is highlighted time and time and time again, often in connection with the glory of God. Thus, from this starting point, right in this verse, right here in Exodus 16, we have another sure example of the countless others found in Scripture which testify to the deity of Jesus Christ. Without either abusing what is written or simply denying the truth of what lies before our eyes, one can come to no other conclusion than that he, Jesus Christ, is the Lord Jehovah of the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord revealed in the giving of the bread from heaven simply pictures the very glory of God in the giving of the true bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus. Verse 7 continues, For he hears your complaints against the Lord. This is explicit. Verse 2 said that the people complained against Moses and Aaron. Now it is openly stated that by complaining against them, they have complained against the Lord. A challenge against one's ambassadors is a challenge against the one who made the ambassadorial appointment. In these words is the first use of the word taluna or murmuring found in the entire Bible. It will be used nine times in only three chapters of Exodus and Numbers, and six of them are used in this chapter that we're looking at right here. Harris, Archer, and Walkie explain this word for us to consider. Let me explain this word. It's the word taluna. The nature, the true nature of this murmuring is seen in the fact that it is an open act of rebellion against the Lord and a stubborn refusal to believe God's word and God's miraculous work. Thus, the right attitude in real difficulty, and this is for all of us, the right attitude in real difficulty is unconditional acceptance and obedience. God's own must never stand in judgment upon him. Verse 7 continues, but what are we that you complain against us? Their words to the people show that the complaints have been wholly unwarranted. It has been, and it will be evident again, that the Lord has led them and he has tended to them all along. And remember, we're only 30 days into their journeys. It is also evident that the Lord is using Moses and Aaron as his chosen instrument for the leadership of his people. Therefore, complaining against them is a complaint against him. And a complaint against the Lord is certainly known to them to be a futile effort. He destroyed an entire nation's economy. He killed the firstborn of the nation. He parted the waters of the Red Sea, and he made the bitter waters sweet. What had possessed this congregation to complain against Moses and Aaron when they had simply been fulfilling the Lord's word on their behalf? And the parallel in today's world is therefore then all the more astounding. The Lord has given his word to direct and guide us his superior word. As it is from him, it is his representative to each of us. And yet, his people complain against it, either implicitly or explicitly, all the time. 
We reject the things we don't like in it. We dismiss the parts which don't fit our warped theology. And we twist it to say whatever we want so that we can feel good about ourselves in congregations which bear little or no resemblance to what the Lord has directed for us. God help us. If the Lord destroyed the Israelites along their journey to Canaan, can we expect any less as we treat his glory with utter contempt by diminishing this precious treasure that we call the Holy Bible? And so to understand that the severity of these Old Testament passages, even the one that we're looking at right here today, are given to direct us towards a right attitude towards God via his word, let's take a moment and read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 just so that we see that he's not just speaking the Old Testament Israel, he's speaking the New Testament church. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them... God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things that they also lusted after. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. When the people complained against Moses and Aaron, they complained against the Lord. Likewise, when we complain against what is written in the word, we follow that same unholy path. Verse eight, also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning, bread to the full. It should be noted now that this verse contains the first use in the Bible of the word sabah, which means to be sated or satisfied. And every time God puts a word into the Bible for the first time, there's a reason for it. I only bring this up so that when we get to verse 12 next week, we'll better understand the timeline of what's going on. And we'll get to that verse, like I said, next week, and I'll explain everything then, unless the Lord comes first. This verse confirms that the glory of the Lord spoken of in the previous verse is talking about the giving of the bread and not that which is seen in verse 10. Verse 6 said, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And verse 7 said, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Now the parallel of those two thoughts is given in one verse, meat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. In paying attention to the structure of these Hebrew parallelisms, you can more easily identify what's going on in what are somewhat difficult passages. Even some of the greatest scholars in all of Christian history who I read for these sermon studies have misread what's being relayed here. Verse 8 continues, For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. A third parallel is introduced. In the middle of verse 7, Moses and Aaron said, For he hears your complaints against the Lord. Verse 8 continues, and what are we? Now a fourth parallel is stated using the same words from verse 7. Venachnuma. And we? What? And verse 8 finishes with these words. Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And the fifth parallel is seen right here. At the end of verse 7, it said that you complain against us. Now this is modified to correct the congregation. Instead of, but who are we that you complain against us? 
they are corrected with the words, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And so in order to make this understandable, because nobody ever does this type of thing, I took all the verses and I put them in parallel form so you can see it. If you got that in your hand, first, verse six, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse eight, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening. Two, 7a, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. 8a, and in the morning bread to the full. 3, 7b, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. 8b, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. 4, 7c, but what are we? 8c, and what are we? And 5, 7d, that you complain against us. And verse 8d, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. These concluding words of verse 8 have a beautiful New Testament parallel. Just as a complaint against Moses and Aaron was a complaint against the Lord, so a complaint against the Lord is a complaint against God. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 10, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. At that time, he was speaking of the word the word of his representatives, those 70 that he commissioned to speak the word. If nothing else confirms the picture of Elim that I gave you from the previous chapter, where the apostles were the 10 wells and the 70 disciples were the 70 palm trees, this should right here. That seemingly obscure verse right at the end of chapter 15 was given to show us that the Lord tests us through his representatives. As the word of the apostles has been recorded and is now our New Testament, the word of those men is our point of contact with God. This account follows directly after the stop in Elim and before they come to Sinai. It therefore follows that the Lord brought them this way in order to show us a picture of this. At Sinai, the bush of the Lord, the law will be received. And that law was received on the exact same day as Pentecost, 1,500 years later. If the stop at Elim pictured the words of the apostles and the disciples at Sinai, and if that's for the giving of the law, picturing the giving of the Holy Spirit to us, then this time in the wilderness of sin is given as a precursor to that. The statutes and the ordinances of the Lord are given to sustain us. They are our daily bread. They are our meat by which we are fed. So I want you all to follow the logic with this. We cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. The Bible was given to us by the representatives of Jesus Christ to tell us about him, and therefore we cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing the Bible. And therefore we cannot know God without knowing the Bible. It is incumbent on each one of us to study to show ourselves approved, being obedient to this cherished word which has lovingly been passed down to us by our merciful and glorious God. And above all, we cannot have fellowship with this God unless we fellowship with his son. As unappealing as this message is to the world we live in, it is a truth which we cannot deny if we accept that this is God's word. And it is. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal savior, calling on him as Lord, you stand condemned before God. So let's get that fixed today. Let me tell you how. Jesus in his word, which is the representative of Jesus who is the one that reveals the unseen father, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father except through me. Nobody. Not one person on earth will ever see the face of God except in condemnation without the blood of Jesus Christ to cover them. There's no way that it can happen because only he has fulfilled God's righteous standard. 
And so what did he do? He came to fulfill that standard for us. And then in that standard itself, the law is something called substitution. An animal is sacrificed in the place of the sins of the people. And so the substitution is made. The law allows substitution, but it also says later in the Bible that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And therefore, they only pictured the coming of the one who can take away sin, Jesus Christ, who lived without sin and gave his life up on the cross of Calvary for our sin. And so if we call out to Jesus Christ, Paul says that the law is nailed to the cross. Our condemnation is gone in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in place, we are imputed his righteousness. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us as the fallen gross beings that we are. He sees us as his cherished children because of Jesus Christ. He sees us through the blood of Christ. So if you've never simply done the one thing that God would ask you to do, which is to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, do it today. Ask him to forgive you. Call on him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Not if, not maybe, not you could lose it tomorrow if you do something stupid. Thank God for that because I do them all the time. But you will be saved. God will favor you by saving you for all eternity because of what he did himself in the person of Jesus Christ. All right? Our closing verse today comes from Philippians 2. It's verses 14 through 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Sounds like the whining we've been seeing today, right? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that you may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. He didn't write those words so that we could ignore them. He didn't give us those words so that we could say, I'm going to just interpret them the way I want. He gave them to us after all of the words of the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years progressively revealed what God was going to do in human history. And then Paul explains it to us so that we can clearly understand. Pay attention to the word. Live the word, love the word, read the word. Don't make Paul's labor having been run in vain, all right? Next week is Exodus 16, it's verses 11 through 21. And I will tell you that there is no need for steak and no need for a banana. It's entitled quail and manna. It's our 46 <laughs> Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And sometimes it might not seem like that, but he does. And then he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem for you based on today's verses. It's entitled Bread from Heaven. And they journeyed from Elim and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, as the account does tell. On the 15th day of the second month, we understand after they departed from Egypt, the land. Then the whole congregation, oh, what a mess of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them in a way not so sweet, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, rather we die by the sword. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger, or so we guess. Then the Lord said to Moses the thing that he would do. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day around their dwelling spot, that I may test them without a doubt as to whether they will walk in my law or not. 
And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily, I say. Sure enough, on the morrow, the process will begin. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt and has led us everywhere we did go. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord quite plainly. He hears your every uttered word. Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, words not so sweet, which you make against him. Your grumblings are filled to the brim. And what are we? Tell us your word. Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Lord, help each of us to be content with the life you have given. Help us not to complain, but to instead be grateful instead. Because of Jesus, we have a promise of eternal living. Because of our Lord, our true and heavenly bread. May we rest in him, content and at peace. May we give you the glory and the praise that you are due. May this offering from us never, never cease. But throughout the ages, may we ever be praising you. Thank you, O God, for Jesus, our precious Lord, who you have revealed to us in your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, your word is precious. It is wondrous beyond belief. Help us to study it. Help us to cherish it. Help us to just even get the gumption to pick it up and read it. Lord, we've fallen so far away from you in this land, and I would pray that people would somehow realize the importance of what you've told us and that blessings from heaven cannot be separated from the consequences of not following through with the blessings we've been giving. Lord, every week when we're out in the projects, Jim and I, we tell the people, we're praying for blessings for you, but we also pray that you will remember to praise the Lord and thank him for what he's given us. Don't do one without the other. Lord, thank you for the blessing of having sent my daughter here. I'm so thankful that she's here and that uh, we've had a good week together, and I pray that you take her back safely where she's going. I pray for Darla, who's out enjoying herself on another fun vacation. I pray for each person here with pains or troubles or trials or struggles in their heart right now that you would be with them and tend to them and meet those needs and then that they would have the wisdom to turn around and thank you and praise you for it. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so utterly wonderful to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his cross and thank you for his shed blood which brought us back to you, O oh God. We love you and we praise you in his glorious name. Amen. Oh, we get the instruction for the uh, Lord's Supper directly from the Bible directly from the superior word. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the ink flowed onto the parchment, and he wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, which he would have said a prayer of thanks over it, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, he broke it, just as his body was broken. He broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Then he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamot borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let him, let him examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Amen.